I training the next Nobel Prize winner? Maybe. It's not necessarily my objective. Increasingly, at least over the last 18 months, I want to better equip these boys to become citizens. I've been thinking of the word more as a verb. What does it mean to act as a citizen? What are your obligations to be a citizen? It's not all about personal freedom. The other side of the coin is responsibility too, right? And we seem to have forgotten that as a country. And that's disturbing to me. You know, as a scientist, it's like, wait a minute, we have obligations to each other. That's part of being in a community. You know, it could be either small school or a large nation. These guys are clean slates in a lot of ways. Now, that's not to say they're not bright guys because they absolutely are. Uh, brighter than I ever could imagine coming here to the Ridge three years ago. But they are in a lot of ways a clean slate. And it's, I feel like, my job to provide these guys with the tools so when they get to Michael and they get to Kara and our colleagues in the upper school, they have the ability to think about these complex topics in a critical way. They are used to group work and they talk all the time. Students are a lot more chatty than they used to be. You know, they used to just sit there and it was hard to get them to draw anything out of them. Um, they just wanted to take notes and listen. And now I found that um, students are they feel a lot more confident speaking up and asking questions and um, it's actually expected and you know demanded of them um, and then there's a lot of emphasis that's been taken away from the teacher um, and the, the, um, te the students are kind of responsible for their own learning in these little you know group work the group work format we Hello and welcome to Stories from the Ridge, a podcast series of the Macaulay School. I'm Lee Burns, head of school, and today it's my privilege to introduce a series that looks inside the classroom and examines how we teach at Macaulay. We are doing that by featuring conversations among teachers in the various academic departments, and today we're looking specifically at the science department. Sumner Macaulay, our Dean of Curriculum and Faculty, leads this discussion with three of our great science teachers. Michael Lowry in his 28th year on the Ridge, and who serves as the department chair, Dr. Kara Nazer in her 10th year, and Matt Allen in his third year. In producing this series of discussions of the academic departments at Macaulay, our main goal is to share some of the magic that occurs in the classroom when you have great teachers engaging the minds of their students. In that sense, this discussion with science teachers is a good place to begin. But as we listen to the conversation, it becomes obvious that these teachers are doing more than engaging their students in the learning process. They are teaching these young men how to be thinkers, how to think independently, and to develop an intellectual curiosity that expands across academic disciplines and lasts a lifetime. Macaulay alumni who are listening to this podcast might remember the days when the science curriculum was about facts. Teacher gave the facts, and students were responsible for remembering those facts. Today, as you'll see, the curriculum is still about facts, but the teachers allow students to discover the facts through active collaboration with other students and by doing rather than by rote memorization. In that regard, I hope you'll appreciate the passion that the teachers bring to their profession, their love for their subject of science, and their love for their chosen profession of teaching. 
They know their specific subject well, and they know their professional craft of teaching equally well. I hope you enjoy these discussions and that you'll join us throughout the next couple of months as we offer similar lively discussions about other academic disciplines. Now let's join Sumner, Michael, Kara, and Matt. I'm Sumner McCauley, the Dean of Faculty and Curriculum here at McCauley, and have three fantastic folks from our science department, and would love to ask them to introduce themselves, and then we'll get going with some questions about what we're doing in science here at McCauley, and in, in general, what's going around in the nation. Michael. Very good. Thank you, Sumner. This is Michael Lowry. Um, I think I'm starting somewhere around year 30 here on the Ridge. Um, pretty cool to contemplate that. Um, it got sort of an interesting year for me. I'm doing what's called maintenance of certification for national board certification, and we may talk a little more about that uh, in this podcast. Uh, this is Matt Allen. Uh, I'm in my third year here at Macaulay. Um, I'm teaching seventh grade life science. Uh, got a history in biology for about six years in public schools before I came here, but glad to be here and starting my third year. My name is Karen Nazer. I'm starting my 11th year at Macaulay as an science teacher and this year I'm currently teaching environmental science at the general level and general biology to freshmen and sophomores. Uh, for my afternoon activity I direct a uh, scientific research program for biology where we raise jellyfish in our classroom and uh, we grow cells in the cell culture lab. My background is I'm a scientist. I spent 11 years in biomedical research studying the infectious disease called prion disease, which is more commonly known as mad cow disease. Um, I don't have any formal teacher education, but now with a decade under my belt, I feel like, yeah, I've gotten the hang of things. But so I'm a scientist slash teacher. That's fantastic. Thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. Incredible backgrounds and wealth of experience that you all bring. I want to start with you, Michael, as head of the department. Um, science is doing some really remarkable things, science education in particular, in the last few years. And I'd love for you to maybe think about what two or three main themes of teaching of science that oh, you're seeing. sure. How they emerged, and yeah, describe some of them for us. Sure, absolutely, and it's fun to think about that. Let's do a quick, maybe a quick history lesson. We'll go back to 2011, uh, summer of 2011. I remember I was on a family vacation. Um, I happened to be on the board of the National Science Teaching Association at the time. I was the high school division director. And we had been doing a lot of work in that organization with something called the Next Generation of Science Standards. And it was, the, it was something called the framework for this, right? And so um, we'd kind of reached a point in science ed where it was like, okay, what's new? How are we gonna proceed you know, moving into the 21st century? And it was really interesting. We had input you know, in that organization, but we didn't, it was all like super hush-hush, quiet, you know, secretive in a way. And to give you a little background, it was a blue ribbon panel. These are scientists. These are, um, you know, our country's brightest and best. They were all Nobel Prize winner or that caliber of scientist. And they're hugely interested in science education. They released that summer the framework for the next generation of science standards. And I remember reading through it, and it was, I was just like amazed at what I was reading. I was expecting the, the typical kind of laundry list of topics, you know, check marks of cover this, cover that. Um, although that was present, um, there were other really interesting things, you know. Two of the things that, pop, that caught my eye, one was this idea of something called cross-cutting concepts, where they were showing how you know, science has a lot of commonality between the disciplines, and that doesn't really emerge hardly at all. You know? So these, these physicists and Nobel Prize winners were all saying you know, these ideas of like scale and, and uh, cause and effect, those are something that we should all be like, addressing. 
The other thing that was very interesting was, was not only what was called uh, the scientific practice. You know, Kara has picked up a doctorate and she's actually been in the trenches, right, conducting research. You know, their whole point was the best way to learn science is to do it, but they also threw um, engineering practice into the mix. And it was, it was very gratifying for me because as a, you know, an educator, I had sort of figured out a couple years into my time on the Ridge that doing these little engineering challenges were incredibly great ways to learn science. Right? For me, it was something as simple as building catapults right, with my students. But the engagement level was incredibly high. They had a reason to learn the physics because they wanted to hit the target. Mostly they wanted to beat their friends, is what I found. <laughs> and you know, so when that framework came out, I was like, this is really interesting. You know, that really caught my attention. And it took a long time from 2011 to where we are now in 2021, where, we're, where they actually published the so-called standards, right? And then um, now we're trying to figure out, well, how do we actually execute this? So here, you know, here we are uh, this year, Matt and Kara and I were actually trying out some curriculum that is totally informed by uh, NGSS, Next Generation of Science Standards. And um, I'll have them speak about their experiences, but I just started the unit today, and some of you were very helpful to help me out this morning. It was really interesting, it was a lot of fun. You know, I felt like a first year teacher again, you know, which um, is in some cases, in some ways very scary, but it's also enormously gratifying and fun. It's like, okay, I'm not sure how this is gonna go, but let's go anyhow. <laughs> yeah. That's right, that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So I, I wanna come back to that idea. When you, Matt, Matt and Kara, when you came across Next Generation Science Standards, is that something that you had experienced growing up in science classes, or is that something that's really kind of uh, for me, and again, only my third year, uh, I had never even heard of the Next Generation Science Standards until I sat down with my colleagues here at Macaulay. And, uh, you know, very early on, before my first year, Michael actually brought a unit designed by the NSTA, the Understanding Growth and Living Things, and it was aligned with the framework, designed to meet specific standards within that, and, um, and the cross-cutting, for example. It does a great job of something that I had not always done a very good job of, which was talking about chemistry in my biology class, just life science class. And it, it explains through simple chemical reactions that we can perform in class how a tree can gain mass through the course of its life. For a seventh grader, that's something concrete that they can see and understand. And it really, like you mentioned with the cross-cutting, it, it cuts across these disciplines of science, which you know will be beneficial for them, just their understanding, but also as they get into the high school and they're taking different disciplines and these different courses. Um, and then to the study that you mentioned, that Michael mentioned that we're doing, um, the engineering design, I'm very excited about this bioengineering challenge, which is a part of that, where these guys are given some sort of random household items and asked to make proteins that perform specific tasks. And it's not necessarily about the structure, but the function, and that sort of leaving, leads into this broader topic of how structure equals function. So those are the kinds of for me, that was brand new, uh, all those things. So to get to experience those and, you know, some of them I've already experienced and then looking forward to some more is exciting and certainly clicks and makes sense. Yeah, that, that's really neat to hear because I remember going through high school and college. I mean, I was a biochem major in college. I don't think folks were talking about cross-cutting curriculum. I remember very distinct disciplines. I mean, you had biology, you had chemistry, and the biochemistry was the, the closest to that. But physics was sort of this other thing. Carrying your research, is that something that led you into research where you began to see those connections? You thought, no, there's something going on across these disciplines. Or is that, was that very different? Um, I was exposed to that in my, my graduate work. I was at the University of Kentucky Sanders Brown Center on Aging, and 
I was part of one of the nation's first programs, a PhD program in gerontology, a biomedical gerontology, and it was promoted itself as being a multi and interdisciplinary course of study um, because to, it's funny that my degree is actually in studying aging and older people, and here I am working with teenage boys. <laughs> but um, Perfect training. Right. Um, so I was interested in studying um, Alzheimer's disease, and that's how I ended up at Sanders Brown. But yes, it was very much a part of that program, which I started in the year uh, 2000 uh, to study um, and to be able to provide treatment for you know, a patient with Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases of aging, you have to care for the entire person and their, the, their caretakers. And mm. um, it's not, you can't just approach anything, you know, simply from one discipline. I think that's, a, that's yeah, a really good point. The questions we're asking just can't be answered by one anymore, right? I had the same experience in my graduate degree in science. It was molecular biophysics, so it was interdisciplinary. But there's this huge irony. So in kindergarten, it's very interdisciplinary, right? And even the teaching of science is done that way. As you march through middle and high school, it becomes siloed, and it's very siloed in college. And then it becomes interdisciplinary again, often in grad school. You know, it's like the fun stuff you had in kindergarten really doesn't pick up again until grad school if you make it <laughs> to that length. Yeah. You know, and, and the point of this, um, of these so-called standards was to like reintroduce that, if you will, or to introduce it again. You know, to try to break down those silos to some extent. You know, it's really interesting. When we see students coming to us internationally, mm. particularly from Europe, there's a, there's a sort of circular curriculum that seems to go on. That's right. That's very different from the U.S. curriculum, where they do seem to hit biology and chemistry and physics, but they're all doing it sort of together, and they keep coming back around to it. And I'm curious at some point if we think we would find that. Carrie, you teach several electives, particularly to seniors, that seem to be that interesting mix. Sort of talk to us a little bit about, for instance, marine biology, what you're trying to do with that, and, and why that sort of is maybe a good example of, of this, this cross-cutting. Sure. So I have a second semester uh, junior and senior elective called marine biology, and it was a, really a dream come true uh, when you guys approached me and asked, did I want to teach a class in marine, marine science? Because, um, you know, I think every kid dreams of working with dolphins or work, working with whales at some point. But... Um, so a lot of the kids who sign up for my class are interested in marine biology because they love to fish. And so the initial part of the course is on the, the diversity of life in the ocean, um, where we take a kind of a tour of the different phylum of life. And uh, boys are hands-on. And so, you know, rather than the way that we were taught in high school, um, we're just covering the topics and studying from the book and you know the labs would might just involve you doing one tiny part of a, an experiment that the teacher was actually really doing. Um, I try to get the, the kids um, their hands their hands wet literally in marine biology class we have you know bowls on their desks and their hands are in the bowls and they ask if they can get stung by a jellyfish and and I say, absolutely, as long as your mom says it's okay. So they often call their mom. But um, I love microscopes. We always are, you know, plopping things on slides and, and um, studying things under the microscope and taking photos of it, documenting, um, doing dissections. Um, I get a lot of fresh kind of seafood, and we dissect that because it's, you know, it's less stinky than <laughs> preserved stuff. Um, and then we... Um, after that, we kind of cover that survey of life, we do a, uh, I emphasize climate change. Um, 
And so last year I had a, a, actually the last two years I had a really good research project going on in my lab for where we studied ocean, the effect of ocean acidification on upside down jellyfish. And in my middle room, the, the storage room um, that I share with another teacher, I've t completely taken over that room. <laughs> it's, it's a research room. We had nine fish tanks in there with uh, upside down jellyfish in them where we were bubbling in carbon dioxide into the water to um, which um, mimics what's happening um, in nature in the, with the ocean absorbing excess CO2 from the atmosphere and this is causing the oceans to become more acidic and causing a pH drop from the natural level of 8.3 down to um, uh, predicted by 2100 uh, pH of 7.5. So we had real research going on in the lab and I had um, the juniors and seniors, you know, for an entire six weeks, design their own research projects and collect collect real data. Um, That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, what, what, I, what I'm hearing, and Mike, I'm going to kind of head back to you. What I'm hearing is what you're doing in your class, Carrie, is you're saying, okay, we have science data. We, mm -hmm. we, we have techniques. And that's much of what, Matthew, you're trying to do in your classes, what I saw this morning um, for, for you, Michael, in your sort of intro to scientific thinking course. And so you, you begin the process of thinking about science, but then it sounds like what you all are doing very much is saying, we need to be very relevant. We need to immediately put it into some type of practice. This can't just be a study of, of stuff and you know, knowledge I'm gonna use. It can't just be a Krebs cycle, and I know what that is. I mean, it's important that they do at some point. This has gotta be fun to think about. Michael, you were part of the very first group then, it sounds like, with that. It's gotta be fun to look back on that. It is pretty cool, yeah, and um, I'm thrilled when I hear Kara describe, you know, it's worth noting, you know, Kara's professional training was, you know, in geriatrics, right? Here she is now a, a quote, expert with jellyfish, right? So you've gone through your own training, right, and, and having to learn and mirror and practice what you preach, right? It's like, I don't know this stuff. I, I need to figure it out. Right, I had to spend a summer at the Tennessee Aquarium getting ah, trained on how to exactly. these things. And that's really kind of, in many ways, what we're trying to do with our students is, is kind of learning how to learn, right? And all of us are oh, doing it. It's not unique to science. But you're absolutely right. I'm definitely sensing, and for me personally, a greater sense of urgency, um, certainly on the climate change issue. Um, you know, it's not something I can just pretend is, oh, you know, they'll get it somewhere else. It's actually on my shoulders as a science educator. I can't expect our poetry department to do this, right? <laughs> you know, this, this is on us. Um, and, and for just a perfect, you know, why is this important? Well, you know, I had the good fortune to do a little traveling this summer, right? Everywhere I went, I was seeing profound evidence of a changing warming planet. You know, I was doing this climb in the Sierra Nevada mountains. It was supposed to be a, an alpine climb. I brought snowshoes, ice axe. There was no snow, there was no ice. It had all melted a month before, you know. I visited the Olympic Peninsula on a, a bird and forestry trip with Earthwatch. Um, we were hitting 100 degree temperatures on the peninsula. It's never happened before in, in recorded human history. You know, so it was everywhere I looked, I was seeing it. You know, we, we just had disastrous floods in Middle Tennessee, disastrous. Our very own Steve Bartlett has been affected by this. You know, so this is affecting our community. It's not theoretical anymore. It's us, right? So it, it's clearly important, and one of the things we're, we're field testing is a, is a climate change unit. But the other thing we're testing is the nature of science, science unit. And just today, Sumner, it just, it just hit me like a, a, you know, a hammer, the importance of why we should do this as science educators. Because right now, as a country, we are totally grappling with science happening in real time, the COVID situation, right? And CDC saying, oh, you don't need masks. You do need masks. What they're doing is you're seeing in real life how science happens. 
that's usually invisible to the public's eye, right? This is normally at conferences where this would be like quietly debated and discussed. Now it's happening in real time, and most Americans are scratching their head saying, well, you said this, and now you say that. You know, and it must be incredibly frustrating to most folks. But if we're doing our job as science educators, we sort of, you begin to realize that's how science happens. It's you know, messy. It's messy. And you, you learn know. things. And you you learn to... things and you adjust accordingly based on evidence, you know. Yeah. And it can be, you know, it's a different kind of thinking. Most people aren't evidence-based, right? You know, or they are, but it's kind of, you know, sort of. Right. That's right. And, and particularly when it's significantly more complex, that evidence is hard to sort of grapple with. Exactly. It's not as easy as to say, right. here's this thing going down that, and it causes this to happen. It, it's right. much harder cause and effect. Carrie, you're about to say something. Look right. Um, yeah, so as part of the, the unit that we're covering now, or I shouldn't use the word cover, that we're teaching now is on the nature of science is that we should abandon the terminology, the scientific method, because it is so messy, it's not actually a method that you, right. you there's step one, step two, step three that it takes all sorts of different um, directions and sometimes it can take hundreds of years. Um, and sciences, um, we learn from the work of previous researchers and it's been going on for, for centuries, um, like what we're, you know, what we're teaching now about vaccinations. This is the anti-vax movement is nothing new. This, people were you know, challenging the idea of vaccination um, 200 years ago, 300 years ago with the smallpox vaccine. Just at the very beginning of this unit that we're all doing nature of science, you talk about how variolation had to come first before vaccination. And it, it is that process of, like you just said, building on itself. But I, I was encouraged that part of this unit is the science surprises survey. And at the end, they, you know, my seventh graders who's brand new to this, they have to write what can science do and what can, what science can't do. And uh, I was really impressed at how many times I read the word evidence and fact-based. I mean, and this is on the front end, like we haven't even got there uh, as far as hearing it from me. So I was really pleased to see it. I think it's a great starting point. And another thing that I've tried to do today to just, like Michael was mentioning, that it changes. The evidence changes and we have to change our beliefs and our stance, like the CDC and things. I had the guys today, not all of them, but a few of them would participate. And, where were you in March of 2020? You know, they're not even at Macaulay, they're in the fifth grade, and what did you know then? And all of them, you know, they would say whatever, and I, you know, we didn't correct it, left it there. And then the question was, well, what do you know now? And is it different? And of course, all of them, yeah, it's totally different. And my point was, that we're starting to try to hopefully drive home, is that that's how science works. We learn new things, and we adjust, and try to learn from it. So part of what I'm hearing is that obviously you have content that, that we would sort of have considered in the past, this is stuff I need to be covering. These are things I want them to be aware of. I, I, I want them to know sort of how bacteria work. I want them to know what a cell wall is. I want them to know phosphorylation. I mean, there are things like that. But quite honestly, those are simply steps to a much larger sense of this is how the world is functioning. And it's much more complex to teach science now than maybe when we were in, in school, I would think. Um, so this is fascinating. So, so what I'm hearing from you all is your approach to what science is about actually is much broader, much deeper, much more complex. I mean, Michael, you mentioned this concept of there's information out there and we have to help them understand how to respond to that information. That's exactly right. right. Talk to me a little bit about that. That's an interesting question, particularly what we're dealing with now, misinformation or how do right. we understand science, how do we read science, how do we see science happening in, you know, in real time. Right, you know, there would have been a time when I said, oh, that's not my job as a science educator, that's someone else's job. And I would 
would know who it was. Maybe the librarian is in charge of that, or maybe social studies. You know, we have a history department, right? <laughs> you know, but I'm, I'm beginning to realize it is absolutely my job, you know, because um, the world that our students live in, you know, social media, et cetera, is simply a wash in both misinformation and disinformation. And they have almost no tools whatsoever to evaluate it, right? And so again, a cool thing about this unit is we're gonna be looking at, for example, uh, COVID misinformation and disinformation, right? And we're gonna give them some, some sort of mental strategies, if you will. Mostly it's like slowing down the, I call it the reptilian brain that immediately reacts, right? And getting that higher order thinking to kick in, you know, and we'll have a little acronym and we'll have them evaluate sources, et cetera, to help and equip them Really, we're trying to immunize them, to sort of use COVID terms, you know, so that they can begin to detect, oh, this, this does not look like a real, you know, this is fake stuff or whatever, you know. It's an, it's, it's an illogical conclusion or something like that. Um, and that's one of the things that excited me most about field testing. It is, it's not only looking at nature of science, but it's also trying to attempt to give them some skills and a toolkit to like slow down, evaluate these sources. What do they mean, you know, and, and is, it, is it real, you know? Kara, with your environmental science course, you do focus a good bit on climate, for instance. Is that something you've run into? Is that sort of this unit that you're dealing with and where science is headed is, not again, not only just sort of content, but you're having to help them understand how to read, interpret, how to sort of identify what's right, what's maybe not right in a very complex world? Yes, that's right. Um, so in my, my um, semester-long um, environmental science class, this is a, a non-AP class at Macaulay right now we have six or seven sections of AP environmental science. Um, but we have a, about 20 kids or so who, who are interested in environmental science but really don't wanna, they're not interested in taking the AP level or they don't wanna take it, you know, take it for a test. They just think that it's cool and wanna learn something about it. And so I've taken this opportunity to teach these kids um, about climate change. I mostly focus on climate change and I realized that um, using this framework from GSE on um, teaching the nature of science first really is going to be um, very beneficial because it's going to teach them how to how to think critically and um, you know evaluate the the sources that they're reading how to deal with misinformation and disinformation um, so they are I'm going through this this unit now and some some of them are like what are we doing you know this isn't really this isn't environmental science this isn't yeah. climate change why are we talking about are we talking about vaccines and, and the history of, you know, vaccines? And, and I, I tell them that, you know, it's, it's a journey. Um, and, I'm, you know, the purpose of this is so that when we get to the climate change section, you're really, you're, you're really there, you're really ready to, um, you know, to, to think more critically about it. Yeah, it, it uh, know it, how to approach the subject. Yeah. So it kind of builds the mindset. Exactly. Builds the way to ask. Right. Matt, in your class, I mean, you, you teach a lot of seventh graders, right? Where are they in this process? Are they getting it? I mean, obviously, it's the first, second day of, of this unit. But in, as you've been teaching recently, do they sort of figure out this, this process? Do they sort of figure out the complexity you're trying to get it? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, one of the, I guess, fortunes of teaching seventh graders is they're gullible in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. So I, I, it's kind of like this, you know, clay that I get to mold. And, and, and that's at times scary, but I think it's pretty nice. And, uh, you know, just like the responses I'm talking about today, I mean, these guys are, are wide open. I mean, and they very often don't question uh, what I throw at them, at least not yet. Uh, but at the same time, I realize that their toolkit, which you kind of mentioned earlier, is empty. 
I mean, they, they've got TikTok, <laughs> they've got, you know, all of their social media, and, but they don't have the tools, right now anyways, to really um, sift through that, to find what is meaningful, what's correct. Um, so I feel like, at least for now, my job, or my hope is that by the time, and Kara just said this, by the time we get through this unit, and we get into deeper topics. Eventually, we'll talk about things like evolution. They have the tools to sift through misinformation and, and also, of course, climate change. So um, I guess to answer your question, right now, I think that they are, they're pretty well on board. I think they're excited about it. They, they like watching videos. So the TED Ed on Edward, Edward Jenner was something that they uh, really took to. I think, I think that's pretty cool, Matt, because yeah. what it's got me thinking is, in the past, Sumner, I would have just I would have just assumed students know that, right? And it's like any assumption, it's not right, or many, right? It's just not true, right? That, that we, if, if we're not equipping them with what science does and what it doesn't do, no one else will, right? And, 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 I, I, absolutely, I mean, just to piggyback off that, I mean, that is, you know, I'd always been in high school until I came here, my teaching career, and that is the number, what you just said, uh, you really can't assume anything. These yeah. guys are clean slates in, in a lot of ways. Now, that's not to say they're not bright guys because they absolutely are uh, brighter than I ever could imagine coming here to the Ridge three years ago. But they are in a lot of ways a clean slate. And it's, I feel like, my job to provide these guys with the tools so when they get to Michael and they get to Carrot and our colleagues in the upper school, they have the ability to think about these complex topics in a critical way. That's fantastic. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and pick up from this in just a second. I'm Sumner McCauley, Dean of Faculty and Curriculum. Thanks for joining us for the conversation so far. We will return in just a moment for more conversations with Kara, Matt, and Michael. You're listening to Stories on the Ridge, a podcast series from the McCauley School. This is the first of a series of seven or eight podcasts as we talk to members of each of our academic departments as to how their disciplines are evolving and how they intend to expose our students to the knowledge, but more importantly, the skills and understanding they will need to become relevant, productive, and contributing citizens in their communities and country. So far, we have heard three teachers share what they teach and how they teach. But this is just the beginning of understanding science at Macaulay. In the second half of this podcast, we turn our attention to the more abstract and maybe even more interesting questions of how we can best help students see the world through the lens of science in ways that might allow them to solve key challenges we currently face. We are grateful to you for letting us share these insights into Macaulay through these podcasts. If you have any reactions or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us at info at Now let's return to our conversation with Michael Lowry, Karen Nazer, and Matt Allen. So welcome back. I wanna pick up with that idea of how we're preparing students that, that you're talking about, Matt. And, and maybe reflect, Michael and Kara, for you, who've been in the classroom a little bit longer, 
have you seen the types of students changing over the years here at Macaulay, or just in general? I'd like to hear Kara first. Kara, do you? Okay. Sure, so I've been teaching for, I'm starting my 11th year, and um, I, started, I started Macaulay teaching honors level biology and chemistry. And from, from what I remember, these students really wanted me to cover the material. You know, pretty much just like I learned in high school. They want to go chapter by chapter. They want to know what's the homework. Let's, the next day I want to, you know, let's go over the homework answers, then we teach the new content, and then we review, and then when's the test? How many quizzes are we going to have? Hmm. And gradually, students are moving away from that, and now here I am with a, a group of kids who may have never been taught that way, and they are used to group work, and they talk all the time. Students are a lot more chatty than they used to be. You know, they used to just sit there and it was hard to get them to draw anything out of them. Um, they just wanted to take notes and listen. And now I found that um, students are, they feel a lot more confident speaking up and asking questions and um, it's actually expected and, you know, demanded of them. Um, and then there's a lot of emphasis that's been taken away from the teacher um, and the the, um, te the students are kind of responsible for their own learning in these little, you know, group work, the group work format. We, we group them together in, in groups of two or three or four, and, and then the teacher goes around and, and encourages, you know, different conversations at each table. So it's more student-led, um, and I didn't see a lot of that. If I tr had tried that a decade ago, kids would have been like, what are we doing? We don't know what we're talking about. We, we get the information from you, from you. teacher. <laughs> right. my, my perspective, that's what I saw in your classroom this morning. Is there were groups, right? Yeah, there were groups. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a really great question, Sumner. I don't know if I can tease apart, you know, are they different and am I different? Mm -hmm. I know I'm not the teacher I was, mm -hmm. right? I'm just not, you know. Um, there is definitely a common thread among these, these boys on the ridge that has unchanged in three decades. Um, uh, there's, a, there's kind of a glint in their eye of, um, I was trying to tell a new colleague, Jessica, you all, this funny story aside, a, a new colleague of ours, she's joined this year. She's taught mostly overseas, um, well-behaved uh, students in Asian cultures, right? And I was trying to hint to Jessica that our boys can be a little earthy sometimes. <laughs> and she had no idea what I was talking about. She has now discovered. <laughs> she's figured it out. <laughs> she's had dorm duty in Presley Hall for a week, and she's like, Michael, I know what you mean now. <laughs> yep, yep. I'll let our listeners figure that out. <laughs> but anyhow, um, they're different, but they're not. I do see similarities to the boys I taught way back in 1993. Um, um, a very hilarious um, earthiness is still very much there. Uh, but Kara's right. There is a much more comfortable expectation of, and, and this was never my gig anyhow, to stand in front of the whiteboard and fill the whiteboard. It just never was me, right? So I guess I was more predisposed to trying to invite students into the conversation rather than lecturing. And certainly, you know, the Red Schoolhouse, when there was the one teacher teaching all age groups, he or she was the font of all knowledge. But that's absurd to think that we're that now, when just a few clicks away, you know, you can Google something, right? So that's really not our job, is to necessarily dispense information exclusively, you know? And we, as a school, we've, we never thought that either, right? We were always interested in character, et cetera. But how does that happen in a, in a science classroom? Well, it happens in lots of interesting ways. Like Sarah, like Kara was saying, you know, those small little things like group work is you have to learn how to negotiate, how to talk, how to share airtime, et cetera, et cetera. You know, those are, I call that sort of a curriculum for life. 
You know, you mentioned, yeah, there are some objectives in terms of science content, but increasingly I'm realizing there's way more than just that, way, way more. You know, as, as often has been quoted, these boys will be working in jobs that don't even exist yet, right? So how do we equip a kid for that kind of future? You know, if it was just encyclopedic knowledge we were transmitting, you know, I guess we could do that. We do it reasonably well. Uh, but it's way more than that. But what an interesting thing when you do have so much greater access to information, again, to information that may not be accurate as well, and you've mentioned that before, but it does seem to be much more helping them in a scientific sort of approach. I mean, there's, there's certain sort of essential questions that science is asking. There's certain things that science seems to be caring more about than other disciplines. And to try and figure out how do you help them develop the skills that a scientist would have as you approach the larger world. Exactly. And, and the skill, I think, Carrie, you're exactly right. The skill is not how do I prepare for an AP test, right? We sometimes have done that in the past, and obviously the guys do incredibly well. You all are to be commended for phenomenal students who are doing very well on those scores. But, but it isn't about that. It really is something much deeper of how do these young men approach the larger world? And in fact, what are they then going to do in that larger world to, to better? And, and science may be the avenue that they do that. Talk to me a little bit about that. Um, it, maybe each of you maybe have that idea. When you are teaching, are you thinking about the young men in front of you as future scientists, future researchers, future folks in the medical fields, future folks in public policy, future folks in, I mean, does that, is that partly impacting how you go about teaching? Uh, yeah, and you know, it's funny because I was thinking just when we were doing our PD uh, on Friday that you led, Sumner. Um, one of the, the video that I watched uh, that was talking about good practices in teaching was a good teacher, a memorable teacher, is a teacher that has a long-term goal in mind for their students. And as I was reading that, I, you know, I was kind of thinking, you know, that that's kind of the idea. And for me, you know, I, I really think about in the seventh grade, because so many of these boys, as I mentioned earlier, are high-achieving in the seventh grade. Many of them were top in their elementary school when they show up. And for the first time in my class, I see them sort of struggle a little bit. And I think that if I can impart that, regardless of what they do, that it's okay to struggle and that there is some value in that struggle, so long as you're, you know, we want them to give great effort, but they may not make an A plus. And I think they're, regardless of whether it's science or, you know, I'm involved with lots of athletics, this implies there as well. So whether they're gonna be a policymaker, a scientist, or, you know, a lawyer, doesn't really matter but they will inevitably have some failures that maybe have some large consequences. And in the middle school, especially, it's a very, you know, I, I say frequently, there are probably no college advisors gonna look at your seventh grade transcript. So it's okay to struggle a little bit and there's some value in that. So I think for me, and I, you know, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but I think that that skill, that uh, sort of resiliency that I try to impart in seventh grade science is something that can be applied as they move up the ridge and beyond the ridge. That makes a lot of sense. There is sometimes I find in seventh grade the first confronting of ambiguity. Yeah. Right? It's the first time they sort of realize, oh, there are a lot of different ways. Oh, and different people have different reactions, even to the same data or the same input. That can be a really interesting thing for a young person to begin to figure out that life is, is so much more complex than how do I sort through that. Care for you, as you think about it, are you thinking about producing researchers? 
Not necessarily. I know that my students are going to go off in many directions, especially considering that I'm not teaching the AP levels. I'm, te you know, I'm teaching environmental science and marine biology to students who may never take science class again in college. And I hope that they can, um, you know, develop an appreciation for for the diversity of life and a respect for you know the other species that that we share the planet with and and um, you know perhaps um, adopt you know a, a way of living that is is more responsible and, and green you know aware of their carbon footprint things like that but um, I know that they're going to go off in many different fields and so again uh, speaking to the skills that they're learning a lot of what we can teach in science is transferable to um, you know, a diversity of eventual careers, um, you know, learning to. Uh, in science, we have you know hypothesis-driven research, and um, in the way that I'm teaching my kids, and sometimes in these small groups, they're designing their own experiments, and since they're designing their own experiments, uh, I don't know the answer. I don't know what they're going to find, and that can drive them crazy because they you know sometimes they just want to know the answer I'm like how do I know this you just designed this experiment it's your hypothesis nobody may have ever done this before um, and that's the way it is in the real world you know we don't we don't know the answer and that's that's what your job is is to yeah. try to figure it out and to look yeah. at the, ev the answer evidence is often, and, it's tentative right right I mean that happened this morning Sumner right the little mystery cube they wanted to know what was on the bottom and it was empty you know, we purposely did that and some were like What's the answer? <laughs> and that was on purpose, to create that ambiguity, right? And say, hey, look, science is never done. You have to stand by what you know now based on the evidence you have. That, that really yeah. resonates. So I teach a philosophy class, and that really resonates because one of the first things we're trying to do in this first week is to say where philosophy tends to be, I'm supposed to find an answer, the, the, you know, the richness of life, I'm flourishing life. What? Nope. <laughs> no, it's the discussion. It's the process yeah. of the conversation along the way. It's uncomfortable. In the, it's you uncomfortable. Know, That's and, exactly right. And you have to embrace it sort of like you would in a, a weeping infant, right? That's right. That's right. You know. To your question, I've been thinking a lot about it. Am I training the next Nobel Prize winner? Maybe. It's not necessarily my objective. Increasingly, at least over the last 18 months, I want to better equip these boys to become citizens. I've been thinking of the word more as a verb. What does it mean to act as a citizen? What are your obligations to be a citizen? It's not all about personal freedom. The other side of the coin is responsibility too, right? And we seem to have forgotten that as a country. And that's disturbing to me. You know, as a scientist, it's like, wait a minute. We have obligations to each other. That's part of being in a community. You know, it could be either small school or a large nation. You know. That's really interesting because it seems like that's actually very historically what science has been somewhat about, right? Mm. It's, it is trying to speak to the problems that that particular person saw in her or his society. That's right. And try and use what she or he saw around them and use their mind to try and figure out how to make something better. Right. In, in grand, it I mean, can definitely inform things. And, and again, I want to be clear with my students what science can and cannot address, right? So there's whole realms that Science is silent, you know, and that's, that's where we leave off, you know, and your philosophy picks up, your theology picks up, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but that's all part of the grand, the grand stew we're serving up, right? That's right. <laughs> you know, we want them, like, having helpings of all of that. So there's some pretty remarkable things we've talked about in terms of what we're trying to do with students. Um, Michael, you all, and, and Kara, 
and then sometimes, Matt, when you come up, you're teaching a pretty phenomenal building. Mm. Okay. And this is not about to sort of praise McCall for the building. I don't mean that. I'm interested in what has that space allowed you to do? What, what's, what first, maybe describe it a little bit, but then what is it allowing you to do as you try and meet these new challenges in teaching science? I remember being up there on the fifth floor of the old, it's still, the academic building is still around. And it was a fine space, um, but you know, even by my third or fourth year of teaching you know, in the 90s, I was feeling restricted in terms of what I could do. The rooms were small. I was doing these little engineering challenges. We couldn't even launch our devices in our room. <laughs> there just wasn't enough physical space, let alone other things, right? So that's a simple, you know, I have these spacious palatial rooms now, wonderfully equipped, but it's not just that. It, it has opened up a whole new spatial, um, what can I actually do? How can I like change what I've been doing? You know, I was, I was like toying with it. Now I've just like ripped off the, the cover and let's do it, diving in full. You know, and like Kara was saying, it's messy. I'm not sure how some of these things are going to end up. <laughs> you know, but that's that's learning, right? Um, it, maybe it's the the difference between information transmission and learning is information transmission is very you know well defined. Learning is messy. You know, you go forward, you take two steps forward, you take one step back. How do we know? Did it, did it work? You know, as a teacher, you're constantly in that. Reflection. In some ways, you just need more space. I mean, you need, yeah, with that. De definitely. Carrie, you, you've done some remarkable research with your students. Talk a little bit about maybe individual projects, but sort of what the space has allowed you to do and why that's important. So the space is important because it allows me to collect a lot of junk. <laughs> so, <laughs> she has and, a lot of stuff in her yes. room. Yes, <laughs> you um, do. <laughs> so people um, know that I have fish tanks and and everybody buys a fish tank for their kids, it seems, at some point, and I'm the one who ends up with it. <laughs> and this is amazing. I love it. There, you know, like once a week, I walk in, and there's new fish tanks sitting in the hallway or some heaters or some, you know, yeah. pumps, and it's, it's amazing because um, I have this crazy collection of stuff, and the kids are uh, often designing experiments in my afternoon activity, and they say, do we have this, do we have this? And I'm like, well, maybe you can build it. Just go in the middle room and just open every drawer, pull out every Tupperware bin, see what you can find. And it's so funny how we reinvent, uh, you know, we reinvent things completely. Or sometimes it's like go downstairs and work with Caleb Bagley yes. the folks there and, and actually 3D print it. Absolutely, yeah. so we, um, you know, today I went down there and it was just a, a simple, uh, just went down there and used their glue gun. Um, but. Uh, oftentimes my kids, like I had some students who were breeding zebrafish who had um, uh, uh, had zebrafish that had a, a, a mutation where they, um, it's called um, TP50, TP53 transgenic zebrafish that developed cancer. And we had to uh, separate, you know, the fish, the different generations of fish. And so we went down to the innovation lab and we... Uh, built these fish tank dividers that had, you know, the water could flow through and they were the exact right dimensions and we cut it with a laser cutter and uh, the kids glued it in and it was, it was pretty amazing. That's we, pretty cool. Yeah, we, we could not have done that. that. Right. We just couldn't, you know. It would have taken days. Well, and there's a, there's a, a cell lab, right? Right, and I have kids use the 3D printers a lot too because the, the plastics can go into fish tanks pretty well. Um, but, of course, no metal. And then, yeah, in the cell culture lab, um, this has been, we, we got projects going the first year that we opened the building, so um, the projects have evolved and now we have a second faculty member who can 
who can work with students because she is also fully trained in you know cell culture. She did that in her in her dissertation work. Um, Dr. Ashley Posey. But um, some of the projects that we've we've had have taken our students to um, the local Chattanooga Science and Engineering Fair where they've they've won first place and then uh, they go to represent Macaulay at the International Engineering and Science Fair. And I had uh, one student who uh, got fourth place, and we can say fourth place in the world, uh, for his project in the cell lab. But um, yeah, we have students growing uh, cancer, cancer cells. We have a student right now who, is, who has lung cells, who is um, adding microplastics that we might inhale from atmospheric fallout of microplastics that come from laundry. Um, he's putting those on lung cells to see can are they internalized um, by the lung cells. I think that's a really cool project. And he's going to run westerns and see if a particular protein is upregulated or downregulated in response to the addition oh, he, of these is microplastics. Is he doing western blots on that? I, starting to, right. I've trained him already and oh, he'll, he'll be getting started on that soon. Um, See, these are things that I ran across in college, but not, not in yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah, I just had a flashback to a graduate class yeah. right. at Vanderbilt. It's amazing how that's changed, right? Um, and my favorite thing to do in the cell culture lab is to uh, try to grow primary cultures from the jellyfish, different species of jellyfish that we raise in, in my wet lab. And I uh, had some students who were able to culture um, cells that looked like neurons. Um, and they lived, and we were able to propagate these cells in culture for one full year. And we took them up to a lab at University of Georgia where the scientists there were interested in studying these. And uh, these kids did pretty well at the science fair as well. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing that we have the ability to propagate cells here um, on campus and teach kids the aseptic technique, you know, in a biosafety level two lab um, in high school. It's remarkable because it, it, that's the type of thing, if they do find that interest in science, they have those skills. It's, it's not just sort of the ability to question, but they actually are beginning to have the specific lab skills that when they move into undergraduate labs, graduate labs, they'll be able to do that. Absolutely. And some of my, some of my former students have told me that um, I always encourage them when they go to college that they, they need to actually go knock on the office doors of professors that they are interested in working in their lab. And, and just shake your hand, you know, stick out your hand. Well, maybe not today. <laughs> um, but introduce yourself and say that, um, tell them the experience that you have in the lab and, and ask if you can start, you know, in the lab by washing dishes. Say, do you need a dishwasher? I just want to get involved in your lab. And then they'll figure out what you already know how to do. And sometimes they get paid work and sometimes they get, you know, a research project as an undergrad. Um, I've which had is, several contact me and say right? that, that, you know, the plan works. Yeah. That's very impressive. I'm sort of having this analogy in my mind, Sumner. It's, it's like when she's talking there. These are, of course, experiences we couldn't have done without the building, right? And you know, that's how maybe we get to those professional scientists. Kids having that experience in high school, it's kind of like the analogy of you know, boarders learn to do their laundry as high school students, so they don't have to. <laughs> they learn all that before they go to college, right? Well, we've got a lot of our boys who are like operating at a high level in the scientific realm, high level. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that's been neat with the, with the middle school is I think, Matt, you've been able to do things that we hadn't necessarily been able to do a long time ago when we had these tiny little spaces. Even that space has had some, yeah, has, has created space for you to be able to do stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, and obviously we're not growing cell cultures and things like that, but it's a huge room. I mean, and, and we've got lots of space. I can put the guys in small groups. You know, we do 
in the spring we do a lot of dissections we're dissecting fetal pigs and sheep brains and sheep's hearts and these are things that you know in a lot of places are maybe you get to do in high school and so to be able to do them with the seventh grade and again i, I kind of think of it as we're preparing these guys in the middle school for the upper school and in addition to that just having the building up there the, the science building and you know, one of the units my guys love is genetic engineering. We spend some time talking about genetic engineering just because it's fun and I think it's very relevant. And to be able to say to them that you're gonna get to do some of these things just up the ridge. You know, without that building, I couldn't say that, right? Maybe if you can stick with it and get to graduate school, maybe you'll get to do it then. But here, because of that building, I can say that to them in seventh grade. And you know, you can see that, you know, the, sparkle in their eye, they, they really find that interesting and find it motivating. So yeah, even at the middle school, our space is, is great. It allows us to spread out, work in those groups, do you know plenty of wet labs in addition to the dissections, but also just sort of been able to point up to the science building. And you know, a lot of those guys are already in the innovation lab taking classes with Mr. Bagby. So some of them are already up there with, with uh, Michael doing uh, some physics. So they already, they know about it and they are very excited about it. One of the neat things I remember several years ago was there was some neat cross-connection between some of the, the seniors and some of the, the middle school students, and that's kind of always neat to see. Michael, as head of the department, so this is the most interesting thing to me now as we come to this concept of science, the level of science we're trying to deal with. This is not the run-of-the-mill faculty. This is a group of people that are dedicated to really asking interesting questions. And in fact, their own lives are not stopping. This is not just about the students, it's themselves and how they present themselves with curiosity. You do a phenomenal job of encouraging your faculty to step out from um, sort of the day-to-day -day and really get involved for themselves. Talk a little bit about what you've done, about some of the others, sort of brag on your faculty a little bit, right? In other words, you've really pushed them and you've offered a number of things, maybe drive a few of those. But then, what are these folks doing over the summers? What are they, what are they continuing to do to keep up with the pace that science education is requiring? Oh, quite a bit, yeah. You know, so I've always personally felt, as an educator, I have to practice what I preach, right? If I want my students to learn something, I have to be committed to my own growth and learning, too. And I'm happy to report that's shared you know, by my colleagues. Um, all kinds of things. You know, Summer, to be an educator, I think H.L. Mencken had this funny saying that, you know, the three reasons to teach are June, July, and August. He was not a very good teacher. Right. <laughs> right. That's, that's the only good. reason you're teaching. Yeah. You know, it's not for the summer vacation. But it is an opportunity to really, you know, dig into your craft, you know. Um, I remember at least one time, you know, Kara and I, we went to that uh, Understanding Growth. Remember that workshop in D.C., right? We learned about that unit that Matt mentioned. I don't know about you, Carol, but that was really cool. Right. Learning about that, right? It was Absolutely. I, still, I, I will teach that every year. Ah, excellent. There is a small sample, there's a small example, where one, you know, sort of professional development experience has had this great return on investment, right? And it really is all about improving the teaching and learning of what's going on in your classroom, et cetera, you know? So it could be something um, directly, like a workshop that Karen and I did, or indirectly, um, when I was, you know, climbing Mount Whitney this summer, the summer, rather. Yeah, just and a little I, bit. You, we were out there for an interesting thing. It was a faculty grant that you received. And oh, that's talk, right. Yeah, talk you a little know, bit about that. Exactly. One of our colleagues, a uh, wonderful, wonderful man, he's our poet laureate, um, our very own Cameron Anderson, left a very generous gift, you know, for professional development. And it's the, you know, the Rose Anderson, he <coughs> named it after his mom, uh, Summer Renewal Grant. And it was, you know, it, he wanted it to be a little more uh, intellectual, a little more academic, if you will. So uh, the basis of my uh, grant was to be part of a, uh, an Earth Watch expedition. 
And if our listeners are not aware, it's basically, uh, they were the first in the so-called eco-green tourism. You join a scientific expedition, you know, you collect data, et cetera. So the title was the, the, the Birds of the Olympic Peninsula. Yeah, that was the, and it was absolutely fascinating. So I'm, I'm doing, you know, ecological field work. We're doing forestry work. Basically, they're, they're putting up recording boxes um, in clear-cut or, or old-growth forest somewhere in the peninsula. They're getting bird songs. Birds are a great default for the health of an ecosystem. If you're hearing a certain Pacific crest wren, you know you have a vibrant forest. You know, and you could say, well, just look around. And we did that too. We did you know, inventory, bio-inventory, um, very, very meticulous uh, at the tree where we would hang the, you know, the recording. But for me, that was just incredibly exciting. You know, so I'm trained as a molecular biophysicist. You know, I don't have any training necessarily in field ecology, but I got a lot. I mean, I got a lot, you know. And not only that, it was just really, really fun tromping through the woods, right? You could just tell walking through these forests, um, you know, an 800-year-old tree in these old growth. It was just astonishing. They're huge, right? And you keep looking up and up and up, you know. It's, where does this fir, Douglas fir end? You know, it was, it was just incomprehensible to me, you know. We would leave the, the base station, and it would be 100 degrees in the city, in the little town. Once you were inside the old growth forest, it was about 76 degrees. It was almost, it's almost as if you stepped through some sort of window back in time or something. It's like those forests were protecting themselves. Now they can't do it forever. I mean, if there's months and months of 100 degree temps, they're just gonna pull out all the moisture from the aquifer and dry out and you know, die. But I thought that was really fascinating. You know, and I could have read that maybe in a book, but you don't know that until you experience it. And that was the beauty of this summer for me. You know, you were literally, I was literally feeling it on a visceral level, you know, and it was both beautiful, but also troubling all at the same time. You know, there was, a, again, that sense of urgency. I came back from all my uh, gigs this summer saying, all right, we got work to do as science educators. We really do, you know. But what an amazing thing to have that experience and to show in your life, in your day-to-day, -day, this is what it means to continually be interested in life. Oh, absolutely. Right, to continually ask questions, to be yeah. curious, to be a scientist. Right. You can't just sit down and read books. No. You can learn a lot, but that's not going to be the actual understanding of science. The that's actual right. doing of the science. Is you got to walk the path, right? Yep. You got to do it. That's remarkable. Final question for you all. Really appreciate the time you spent here. When you look at the next sort of 50 years of science education, so that's a, that's a hard thing to, to imagine. What do you what do you see as elements? that you're already preparing for. You're already thinking about how you're structuring your teaching, how you're altering your teaching, the types of students and the way they're gonna access information. What are you beginning to think about as evolution? So that if we had this conversation in 20 years and we were talking about education, you would think, oh, back then, I was so naive. I was so, I was doing this or that. <laughs> and I needed to be doing this other thing. What strikes you as what's coming up? Um, you know, I guess for me, you said that the tools, or I keep coming back to the tools, but I think as educate, or as, excuse me, information becomes more and more available, they need these tools to evaluate, you know, the fable method and some of these things we learned about this summer. Um, but also, you know, when you think 20, 50 years, especially after listening to, listen to Michael, and we, as a science department, read a book last spring, Life After Warming, it's really, I think, necessary for all of us to make these students aware that climate change is not this far off thing. 
And I think that in the seventh grade, I see that a lot. These guys have heard about it, they know about it. A lot of them are on board and supportive, but they don't think about it as something they're living in. So I think, you know, as thinking about the next 20 years for me, I hope I can do a better job on not just teaching these guys that it's real and it's upon us, because I think that is gonna become more and more evident without me having to tell them, and we're already seeing that, but what can we do? And, and the ability to think like a scientist should hopefully allow them to actually do something. Yeah. So I, I guess that would be where I hope it goes. Yeah, really thoughtful. I agree with you. Um, yeah, yeah too. my answer, <laughs> my answer was going to be very similar. Yeah. Um, it's, it's such an obvious place that science is needing to help us figure out solutions because it's right there. And without it, you know, yeah. <laughs> not to be too oversimplified, but I don't, what else matters if we don't hmm. create some action? Right. I think that there's going to be a lot more lessons on clean energy, you know, maybe mm. in middle school mm. and, you know, what is, how do solar panels work and um, understanding weather systems, maybe, you know, from earlier age so that when we get to high, when they get to the high school level, maybe they can start thinking about how to solve the problems. Okay. So, you know, they come in with an understanding of the problems already. You know, right now they're coming in with an understanding about you know, well, photosynthesis is. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's going to be a new level of thinking, right? Both right. Of you said solve problems, which, by the way, is the essence of engineering. That's what engineering, which is always like, you know, I've always been doing this tinkering on the edges, but I'm realizing we want to equip these boys so they do have the knowledge, skills, the attitudes, right, to actually solve these problems that, you know, our species have created. And science will play a large role in that, but not an exclusive role. I'll cycle back to my colleague, Kemmer Anderson. He has this great phrase. He's our poet laureate, right? So we're gonna have to lean on, on poetry, too, <laughs> to help us get through this in 50 years. But he has this great quote. He says, you begin your teaching career because you love your discipline. And he says, you remain a teacher because you love your students. And here I am three decades into it, and I'm only now beginning, he's right. <laughs> that early version of me were like, what are you talking about, Kimmer? What's all that warm and fuzzy BS, right? <laughs> and it's like, he's right. He's absolutely right. Uh, I look into their faces, I see their future, and I see a lot of brightness in their future. But I'm also, you know, trained enough as a scientist to know it's not gonna be easy. It's just not, you know, and, and I'm not gonna, you know, hide the, the truth from them either. But it is their future, and we'll walk to it together. And even though I can sort of extrapolate into a future, none of us really know what, what it's going to be like, which is part of the fun, I guess. Well, and that's, that's the, the excitement and the joy, I think, particularly in science, mm -hmm. because there is the chance to, to create and find dramatic changes. Yes. It's not just interpretation of, and, and that, that's true with history, that's true with English, it's true with a number of disciplines where there's a narrative, they're thinking about it, I mean, those are important. But one of the things that you all are helping these young men do is realize that they can make a huge difference in what they produce, in what they create, in what they innovate, in what they think about, and can actually turn back um, a lot of the pressures that we're seeing that we're creating inside yeah, ourselves. Yeah, I think that's true, you know, and, and giving them room to do that sort of good practice, kind of in a sandbox. That's right. At our best, that's what we're doing, right? We're training citizens, um, active citizens, not just passive folks who, who expect a certain number of rights, right? correct? But someone who's willing to roll up their sleeve and maybe give up a little bit, you know, and, and, and chip in, right? And then the other thing, you know, another question you had, I remember being a Fulbrighter in Japan, written into their curriculum, Sumner, is this idea is they want, they want 
their citizens to become kind, which I thought was so interesting. That's one of their national objectives with their citizenry is to become kind to each other. And that was like alien to this American, <laughs> which is like, what? How do you like do that? <laughs> in, in, in Japanese education, it's respect, right? Um, and that is an element, but uh, there's this one reform, you know, and he was, he's somewhat successful, I guess. His goal was to create kind kids. You know, he created a curriculum of kindness. And that was just really interesting to me. You know, those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about, too. It's like, how do I do that as a science educator? It's know? fun to think about the breadth that science now yeah. contains and the breadth that teaching contains. Correct. All of that happens when it's those everything. Kids. It's everything. <laughs> every yeah. subject is every subject. Yeah. <laughs> really is. And that's going to become maybe more true in the future. Yeah. Every subject is maybe those going silos to become climate change, away. unfortunately. Yeah. Well, the, the, sort of going back to the very beginning, the idea of the cross cutting, yeah. it's no longer just between the sciences. It's not. It's very much between the disciplines. Exactly. Kara, Matt, and Michael, thank you so much for taking time, sharing what you're thinking about, where you think science is going. You all are making an enormous difference for our students and for our world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you. Cut. <laughs> <laughs>